Well, thank you. It's a, an absolute joy to be here. Thankful for Pastor Nate and the invitation for our friendship. It started off a little slow as we started to connect for some lunches, and he was a little hesitant. He can tell you why on that. Uh, but God began to just grow us together, and uh, just really so thankful for him. It's an honor to stand in his pulpit and this church for Matt and for, of course, Chris and Phil, who were part of our church for years. And it was hard to see them go, but we we're so excited for all of you and for your church. And we pray for you regularly, and we're thankful for you. And uh, really, God's doing something wonderful and connecting a lot of like-minded churches in our city. And your pastor has been a key part in that. The practice of praying every Sunday for other churches and, and the pastors has really spurred on. And that's kind of, the, kind of the, in my opinion, that's the trigger that God used certainly to help open my eyes to the fact we need to work more closely together. And I think a lot of our churches have experienced that as well. So it's a real joy for my wife Cindy and I to be here with you. And uh, Nate has to preach twice. I only have to preach once. And so, and I think uh, I heard a few came from our church to check out this church as we regularly encourage people to kind of move over to some other churches in the city to put their hand to the plow. And so if you're here thinking you're going to hear Nate, I apologize. You're stuck with me again. And uh, you'll have to come back next weekend. So uh, open your Bibles to John chapter 21. One of the most common questions I get asked as a pastor is in regard to God's will. What is it? How can I discern it for me? Can it change, etc.? And God's will impacts all of us. Jesus said in Mark 3.35, Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and my mother. Who doesn't want to be identified with Jesus in that way, but it's tied to God's will. So the question of what is God's will for my life? I hope you're like the psalmist who wrote, I delight to do your will, O my God. And Scripture tells us many things about God's will. And in Peter, Peter tells us that we should do right. That's God's will. That we should be sanctified, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians. That's God's will. That we should give thanks in all things, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians as well. And we should also uh, live, we would also live forever if we are involved and engaged in God's will. And so there's many things. But this morning I want to help us from the example of Peter and Paul in John chapter 21, the last sort of interaction or one of the last interactions Jesus has with these two disciples specifically, and he's instructing them as he knows he's about to leave and ascend to heaven, and he's encouraging them. And uh, as Paul says in Ephesians 5.17, we need to understand what the will of God is. So I want to help us be reminded of three realities of God's will that were instructed to Peter and to John, not Paul, Peter and John, and the instruction was there. And by application, I think these apply to us as well. And so I'd like to read for us uh, in John chapter 21. Now we're going to jump in the middle of sort of a narrative passage. In verse 15, Jesus has that interaction many of you are familiar with where he asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter says three times, yes, Lord, and he says, feed my sheep. And this is coming at the end of that in verse, uh, verse 18 into 19. He says uh, to Peter, verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you 
and carry you where you do not want to go. And John adds in parentheses, this he was said to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, to Peter, follow me. And Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned against, his back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? And Peter saw him, that man, and he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among the brothers that this disciple, that man, was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? John concludes his gospel saying, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, it's a privilege to be here, to be with this part of our church family. Thank you for Knollwood. Thank you for the history of this church, the faithfulness in the gospel for decades in this city. Thank you for Nate and for the elders here and for the staff, for this congregation, the faithful witness, for the way you are at work in growing this church, in transforming and saving lives. And Father, we just pray for this time now together. It's been a joy to be in worship, and then we love to open your word. We need to hear from you, not from a man. We need and pray humbly that your Holy Spirit would illuminate this living, active word that you would speak to us. You know each one of us. You know what's going on in our lives. And I pray that your spirit would take your word and do that perfect work that only you can do. So we humble yourselves. We submit ourselves. We ask your spirit to move. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, three realities of God's will for you and I as we consider how we walk faithfully after him. Number one, God's will is for potential suffering. God's will is for potential suffering in verses 18 and 19. Now, now I hate to start negative, I apologize, but that's the text, and we are constrained and directed by the text. And so Peter and John, as I said, are interacting with Jesus. It's not that long till Jesus will ascend. And here he gives a prophecy to Peter about the future in the next year's that is to come. And when you read verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you are young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. When you read those, you're thinking, uh, some of you, I understand that. I live that life. And some of you, it's coming. And it's a very common practice. And I'm into that age where the older you get, uh, the more you realize you can do less than you used to do. My father, I just saw him on Friday, is 92, and uh, he needs help with so many things. And uh, so as you read this, you're kind of thinking, isn't that everybody's experience? 
as you try to look at it, you're thinking when you're young, you used to be able to dress and get put on clothes as you wanted and walk wherever. In other words, nobody needed to help you. And, but when you're older, you, we read it and we think, stretch out your hands. Somebody's, like when my father walks, I have to help him or somebody does. And, and they'll help dress you and carry you do where you do not want to go. That's not actually what Jesus is prophesying. And uh, verse 19 is crucial to understand verse 18. And the immediate context is always instrumental in helping with biblical interpretation. And here in verse 19, John, as he writes the gospel, wants to make sure they were clear that they understood what Jesus was prophesying about Peter. And John says, this he, Jesus said, to show by what kind of death he, Peter, was to glorify God. And so here, when Jesus is talking about Peter getting older, he's not talking about reaching out his hand so somebody could make him stable so he can walk. He's not talking about the clothes he'll wear every day. He's not talking about being led around as he does daily chores and activities. John says verse 18 is about the prophecy of Peter's death. And I did listen to your pastor's preaching on this passage and he's right in his interpretation because he agrees with me. <laughs> no, no, he, I just wanted to make sure we were in sync, and I was relieved to find out we were. And most commentators believe when Jesus says to Peter, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands. In other words, it's a prophecy that, Peter, your death is going to come by crucifixion. That, that, that visual he gives with the cross beam and the idea is that another will dress you it's what they did with Jesus they stripped off his clothes as they led him to be crucified and it's a prophecy that Peter one day this is coming where they're going to take your clothes and do whatever they want and they will lead you where you do not want to go which is to a cross and so here, Peter is being told by Jesus, he will lose his freedom, and he will ultimately be crucified by a cross. Crucifixion, as you know, perhaps is the worst form of death. It was actually designed to last days to torture the most. Tradition says, not scripture, tradition says, Peter's life did end in crucifixion, and his one request which they honored, tradition says, he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. So he asked to be crucified upside down. And so tradition tells us this is how his life ended. In this context, the younger Peter carries the positive connotations of freedom, which is what we all want. But Jesus says the day is coming, Peter, and it's my will. It's the Father's will that your life will end in martyrdom on a cross. Now remember, this is Peter, faithful Peter, Peter who proclaimed God's word, Peter who was one of not just the 12, but the inner three, the closest to Jesus, Peter who God used to bring the gospel to the, the Jews, Peter who God used to write some of scripture, Peter, who, yes, made many mistakes, but was humble and repented. Peter, who walked in faithfulness. 
God's will for that man was future suffering and martyrdom. He would be arrested, he would be hung on a cross, perhaps upside down. We need to learn from this. We need to understand here, please hear me, because this may be God's will for you and me. The suffering is his plan, his perfect plan for us. You see, Peter's life wasn't about ease and about comfort, about problem-free living. His ministry isn't always trending up and to the right and everything was going to be sunny days, no opposition, no problems. You see, contrary to the health, wealth gospel, my friends, the health, wealth gospel, it says if you have enough faith, if you believe enough, and usually it involves if you plant a seed of a donation financially to some ministry, then he, God, will pour out blessing upon blessing and you'll have wonderful health and growing wealth and problem-free living and bigger cars and better house and nicer clothes and sunny and happy days. That gospel is heretical and false. The Bible does not teach this. We need to be careful we don't take promises made to others and apply them to ourselves, such as Jeremiah 29, 11, where he has plans to prosper. Those were promises made to Israel and not to us. And God actually does have plans to prosper us, but his blessing might be suffering. And we need an adjustment in that because we don't want that. We don't look forward to that. It might be that for us as a church, for Knollwood or for redemption. As we walk faithfully seeking after God, seeking to obey, as we heard the children taught to trust and obey, to listen and to follow, to glorify God. And often seasons in church life are seasons where people are being saved and growing in their faith, and, but there's no guarantee of that. Our experience as a church has been, we've had seasons like that of growth, where God's blessing looked like that sort of joy of the absence of problems and no major sin issues to deal with and wonderful seasons. But we've also experienced seasons where God's blessing has been people leaving and heartache and sin and sorrow and difficulties and tears and brokenness. We have to be careful because we can so easily just decide, I'll accept God's will when it's positive and good and enjoyable, but if it's not that, if it's the opposite, that can't be God's will. Then we grow bitter, we grow angry. Here God's will for Peter in the coming years is suffering and loss, ultimately martyrdom. You and I have no idea what God's will for us in the coming days, weeks, months, or years is. The beloved, as confusing as it may seem to us, like it's sometimes, is it not true? Sometimes this cannot be right, this cannot be God's best, this cannot be good for me, but it's happening. Peter described it this way in his epistle as he came to understand this. 1 Peter 4, verses 14 to 16. 1 Peter 4, 14 to 16, Peter writes, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Now, now I, think, I think persecution is coming to Canada. I think persecution is coming to Ontario, to the Christian church. I believe it's going to happen in my lifetime. One of the 
things we're doing as elders is happening, trying to actively train the younger generation because for sure it's coming in their generation. But Peter says when that happens, when you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. We need a change in our thinking to understand that's God's blessing. He says, because of the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Like you're not being blessed by God when you're suffering because of your own sin in attitude or action. Yet, he says in verse 16 of 1 Peter 4, if anyone suffers as a Christian for their Christian testimony, for their ethic, for their moral, for their faithfulness to God, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but listen, let him glorify God in that name. So I wonder if we can adjust our thinking that when God's blessing is the trial, the loss, the tears, the heartache, the suffering, the mourning, can we still choose to praise his name and rejoice? We believe from scripture that Peter spent about another 10 to 20 years serving and preaching and proclaiming Christ, knowing the whole time crucifixion is coming. We don't have any record that he got angry at God, grew in bitterness, but rather that he died in faithfulness, willing to walk the path of God's will. Just last Sunday, I had a family come to me after second service and said to me, do you remember that sermon you preached? I preached this the first Sunday in January. They said, where I said on that Sunday, 2024 may be a year of great suffering and loss for some of us. They said, remember when you said that? I said, I do remember I said that. And they said, well, that's us now. They just found out a cancer diagnosis has come. Severe. Three daughters, mom and dad, we prayed for them. And our elders, right after first service, were going to lay on hands and pray for them for God's healing but they said, we are trusting in the sovereignty of God and we're choosing to rejoice and thank God in this. That's what we need to learn from Peter of God's will for us. Many times we can't and won't see how this is good until we get to glory. One of our elders is a man of great faith. And John, and he, I just learned so much from him. And often he will remind us, men, he's... He'll remind us, remember, one day, one day on that day, we will see how perfect this thing is, how that's good and perfect and God's best for us. So we can't see it today, but let's choose today by faith to thank him, knowing that day's coming. That's what faith is. You don't see it. It seems wrong. Everything about it seems wrong. But by faith today, we'll choose to thank God for the blessing of the suffering, because we know God is always and only good, working things for his glory. So God's will may be for your suffering. Secondly, in this passage, we find out another truth of God's will. And God's will is not just that we may suffer and we need to walk through that faithfully, but God's will is that we would be a people of the word, a people of the word. We're going to skip over verses 20 and 20 to 22. Well, come back to that and cover it in a little bit more detail. I'll say a few things about it now, but we're going to come back and revisit 20 to 22. But we see in 23 to 25 how God's will is that we would be a people of the book of Scripture. 
Now, to help us understand 23 to 25, we need to look at a couple things in verses 20 through to 23. In verse 20, John writes here that he talks about the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And Paul or John gives another description of him, the one who leaned back against Jesus at the upper room and said, who's going to betray you? So you, you're thinking, well, who is this man that Peter's looking at? Well, John actually tells us in verse 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things that you would know that the testimony is true. This is John writing about John. So John says, the one writing these very things to you is the one who Peter looked to. But John doesn't name himself. I don't think it's a false humility. The way John actually identifies himself in these passages is that he's the one who Jesus loved. I think John was so gripped that Jesus would love him a sinner, as undeserving as he is. He was just overwhelmed, and he just wanted to be known as the one whom Jesus loved. Isn't that wonderful? He didn't care to put his name forward. And so Peter turns and looks at John. In verse 21, Peter asks, if I'm to die by crucifixion, I think Peter understood it, what about John? And Jesus responds in verse 21, if it is my will that he remains until I come, what is that to you? Now, that is said here. Now, that sets up our passage because John knows he has an issue he has to address because that statement was made by Jesus. If he, John, if I decide that he can live until I come back, what is that to you, Peter? And John now, before he goes on with saying what he's going to say in verses 24 and 25, he, he has to address that issue. You see, all the disciples were there and heard that statement where Jesus said of John, if, he, if I decide he lives until I come back, what is that to you? And what had happened was that started to get told to other people. And by the time John writes his gospel, a story was out there that everybody believed that Jesus said John would not die until Christ came back. And so John wants to address that as he writes his gospel. And so John corrects it. In verse 23, the saying spread among the brothers that the disciple is not to die. Yet John, see how he corrects it? Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but he gives clarity. Jesus said, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And so John's submitting himself to God's will here as Peter is. Something for you and I and no wood and redemption to look at. So what's God's will here for John? Well, John actually gets at this in verses 24 and 25. It's his conclusion to his letter. If you do any writing, you know your introduction is important and your conclusion is important. When you're preaching, we work with preachers to understand your introduction is important and your conclusion is important. And normally we encourage you to tie your conclusion back to your introduction. You tell people at the beginning what you're going to say, then you say it, then you tell them what you said and tie it all together. We preachers don't always do that, but that's what you're supposed to do. All right? So here John, I think, is doing that. Verse 24, he says, this is the disciple who's bearing witness about these things. And here's the key, who has written these things? John's referring to his own letter, his evangelistic letter. 
I have written all that I've written in these 21 chapters. And we know this testimony is true. And then he adds this fascinating verse. He concludes with this. It must mean something important. You know, if you're ending off with some, you want to make sure you got to kind of say the last. Sometimes we preachers, when we're trying to close a sermon, it's called landing the plane. You ever seen planes do touchdown landings? And sometimes when you think you kind of haven't been really clear, you do a touchdown landing, and then you circle around and take another shot at trying to be clear, and then you circle around and take another. Just, just land the plane. Let the people go home. But, but John's not doing. He's emphasizing something really important here. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books would be written. Now, that appears to be a massively big exaggeration, doesn't it? Like, you're looking at that going, John, you're taking a little bit of license here. Come on. That, that's an exaggeration. John says Jesus did so many other things including the words he spoke and the teaching he taught and all the things he did were all of them to be written. John says, I suppose, now John's an educated, I know he's a fisherman, but he's learned so much and, and he's not ignorant. And he says, I don't think the world could contain the books that would be written. And I don't think John was ignorant of how large the world is. He knew they were living in a small part of all that God created. He had the Old Testament and Genesis so we have to stop and ask, is this a gross exaggeration by John? I mean, it appears to be that. I mean, after all, Jesus only lived 33 years, and his public ministry was only three years long. And according to my research, the surface of the earth, including the water, if you look at the entire globe, the surface, it constitutes 197 million square miles or 510 million square kilometers. That's a lot of surface. How many books would have to be written to fill 197 million square miles? Now we know Jesus is a God man. He's divine. He's perfect. He's always about his Father's will. But still, come on, John. This is inspired by God. That the world itself could not contain all the books that were be written, even if you just took the surface of the land, not the water. Then John's saying there were so many books that would be written that a 57 million square miles could not contain them all. That has to be an exaggeration. Well, let's just consider this. Is John exaggerating? Is he taking poetic license here? Just a couple quotes here. One author says... John calls on the reader to recognize the immeasurable greatness of this Jesus who touched the world in human form and left an indelible impression on human lives and, his, lives and history. This is getting at it, the immeasurable greatness. D.A. Carson, many of you know him, and he talks about the extreme nature of this statement by John, and he writes this, doubtless this may be taken as a pardonable exaggeration, but... The stylistic and theological care of the evangelist, that's John, throughout the work, his letter, argued decisively against the suggestion. D.A. Carson, one of the most learned men today and scholars, says you cannot take this as an exaggeration because the way John writes his letter and the grammar and the approach and all that he puts into it does not allow you that option to say John's just exaggerating. 
So if John's not exaggerating, how in the world can this be true? I think what John is doing is being a solid writer, and he's tying his conclusion back to his introduction. And so just go back to John chapter 1. So important to, to understand what he's doing. He's ending his letter. He's referring back. Now remember, their day, these letters that were written and passed around would be read in one reading typically. So the church would gather, friends would gather. If they had a copy of John's letter, they would sit and read it. If you read the Gospel of John, it'll take you about 80 minutes to read it. That's about the length of your service here. And so they would read it, and they would read the introduction, and then they would read the content, and then they would read the conclusion. It would all come together. We miss that because we take different approaches, and typically you don't take an entire church service to read the Gospel of John. But John writes here in his introduction, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And Word, of course, is capitalized there because it's a synonym for Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. Listen, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, in Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's his introduction. He spends the rest of his letter presenting that Jesus. And when he concludes his letter, he ties back, I believe, to that Jesus. We're just preaching through the gospel or the book of Genesis now, and we've spent a number of weeks in Genesis 1 and 2. You're doing the same thing here, right? And that I know a lot of churches are preaching Genesis. I think we've all realized the world's going crazy, and we need to get back to the basics, back to the foundational truths. But if you think of Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus spoke. The scripture says he was the one who did the creating work as the second person of the Trinity through the third person of the Trinity. And he spoke and everything that was ex nihilo out of nothing came to be. And New Testament says he holds it all together. So I think what John is reminding us of what he started out, this Jesus who walked the earth who looked like just another na- na- uh, man, Isaiah 53, had no form that we would recognize him as a savior, but that humble God-man actually did so much this world could not hold at all. Because he's not just talking about the teaching and the miracles, he's talking about the creative work and the fact he's infinite God. That's who he's been presenting in this. And if you start thinking about that, that that one decided as he moved men to write scripture that we only needed 66 books. If he could write and fill this entire world with all that he knows, and he knows more than that because he's infinite, and he decided that this was enough, that this is sufficient for you and me. And that gives emphasis when John says in verse 24, this is the disciples who's bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know this testimony is true. Here's what I know. God's will is that you and I would be a people of this book because it's unlimited what he could have told us. Therefore, what he told us, God wrote a book, and what he's given us is absolutely foundational 
and crucial to life and godliness. It's important to understand that. So many people make light of God's word. I'm thankful for your pastor. It was one of the things that knit my heart to his and to this church and our elders have met with your elders and we, we just came away so thankful and so grateful to the Lord for their commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of Christ is why we supported Chris and Phil coming here in terms of wanting them and praying for them and we laid hands and sent them. Why? Because there's a commitment in this church to the word of God because in it we find the, in the written word we find the living word. And too many churches set this aside. Too many Christians never pick up their Bible. It needs to be a priority in our lives. It's God's will that we would be a people of the book. And if you want to be able to be faithful when the suffering comes, when the trial hits, when the loss happens, when the martyrdom comes, when the persecution hits, you must be a person who's continually abiding in Jesus Christ. And we do that by abiding in his word. So we encourage you in that to God's will, not only that you would be faithful in suffering, but it's God's will that you would be a person in a church of the book, of the word. Third, we come to God's will is for obedience. Obedience. Let's go back now to verses 20, 22. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. That's John. So Peter turns and sees John. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, what about this man at the end of verse 21? Now, what do you mean, what about this man? Well, Peter's just understood, Peter, when you're old, you're going to die a martyr's death. Peter, you're going to be crucified. And Peter turns and goes, well, what about him? Now, this isn't like your kids in a sinful way, <laughs> right? Because the kids do that, and sometimes we adults do that. Something about, well, I have to clean my room. What about him or her? Or I have to eat my vegetables, what about... And so you're always worried about the other person in a sinful way. That's not what is happening here. Scripture doesn't tell us, John doesn't tell us specifically what Peter's concern is when he asks, what about this man? But if you follow the Gospels, Peter and Simon and John and James were fishermen and they knew each other. I think they probably grew up together. I think Peter and John were incredibly good friends. I think Peter submitting himself to Jesus' prophecy that, Peter, you're going to die by crucifixion. I think Peter, just with a heart of love and care, is he going to as well? Not that if I'm going to, he should, but rather if he is, then I know how to pray for him. And I know how to walk with him. I think what is here is not a sinful heart, but a rather uh, incredibly caring and loving heart for a friend and a co-labor in ministry. It's a crucial truth. And then Jesus says, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is a crucial truth that Jesus is teaching Peter something that we need to learn by extension, by application. We would do well to hear and understand and embrace this because we struggle Listen, we struggle with the comparison thing. We struggle with the comparison thing in two ways. Both are, tend to be, they're sinful. We struggle when things are going well in our lives. We look at others when things aren't going well in their lives. And here's our sinful attitude so often. If they were walking as faithfully as me, that would not happen to them. 
We may not say it, but so often it's so easy to think it. If they were raising their children as well as we are, that wouldn't happen to them. If they were obeying God as I am, they wouldn't get that cancer diagnosis. The flesh is so twisted, and it's so easy to go to that comparison thing and think when things are going, listen, if things are going well and you're in a season where God's blessing is, is problem-free and health good and all of that, listen, don't start doing that sinful comparison thinking you deserve what you have and they getting what they're getting. The other side is true though as well, which is sinful also. When trial hits you, when loss hits you, when your spouse leaves, when your children are prodigals, when you get that call from the doctor, when the tears flow and you can look at others and that's not happening to them, and listen, you can start to get bitter and angry at the Lord in that comparison thing. And you start to wonder, is God really good? Does God really love me? This, this whole comparison thing, this is so twisted. It's so twisted. Does God have what's best for me? How, how can this be God's blessing? We, we've got to stop doing that. And I think Peter serves as an example here. I don't think it was sinful on his part. I think there was compassion and care for his brother, John. What will you do? When suffering comes into your life, will you compare? Will you complain? Will you criticize? Will you accuse God? Will you abandon your faith? I was so touched by that family on Sunday to see their three daughters and their couple just saying, we are rejoicing in the sovereignty of God. Yes, we love prayer for healing. Yes, we're going to a surgeon and getting surgery. But we will trust in the sovereignty of God. This is his good and perfect will for our lives. I wonder, are you there? These words to Peter are a gift to us. I know for me, I need this so often. I can slip into fleshly thinking so quickly. If it is my will that he remain until I come, here it is. What is that to you? Maybe some of you right now need to hear Jesus' words, not to Peter, but to you, because you've been doing that thing. He says to you, what is that to you? Whatever I'm doing in their life, whatever my will is in their life, what is that to you? Get your eyes off of them. Stop doing the comparison thing. Just stop it. It's, it never ends up in a good place. It's not my will for you. And here's what his will is. You follow me. You see, God's will is obedience. Not, well, well, God, things never work out. Some of you would just think, I know, and I, I can go there so easily myself. It just, you know what I mean? You're always expecting the worst to happen. It's, 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 I know it, I know, yeah, it's a good day, it's a good week, but I know next week's going to be, Nate and I kid about it, because we both can be a little pessimistic, and we both say we're actually realistic. That's the term pastors use. It's just realistic, but, but I, I can tend to that, and, and maybe you can too. And, and listen, what is that to you? God calls you today, today. Just follow me. 
is follow me. These little kids up here were such a perfect example of that. When you have little ones that age, what do you say to them? Just put your hand in my hand. And just, would you just trust me? I know where I'm going. You're three years old. You don't know where you're going. You don't know what's good. And I know you're crying and whining because you don't think I'm doing what's good for you. But would you just trust me? Put your hand in my hand. Would you just follow me? That's us with our Father. When it doesn't make sense, when everything seems turned upside down, when it literally, listen, when it literally seems wrong as wrong can get, He says, would you just put your hand in mine? Would you just trust me? What is it to you? Forget all that. Just follow me. That's God's will. Romans chapter 9, verses 20 and 21 Paul writes, Romans chapter 9 is not an easy chapter because it corrects and confronts. And a lot of people would like to scratch it out of their Bible. I know when we preached through Romans, we had some people leave for those weeks, four weeks when we preached through Romans and then came back at the end of it. It's like, well, that's probably not the best way to handle that. But anyway, Romans 9, 20 to 21. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Listen, listen, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? If God wills, what is that to you? What is that to you? It's the kindness of the Lord to give this instruction to Peter and to John and to have John write it so that we could read it, so that we could learn, be reminded let me wrap up. God's will. God's will. What is God's will? There's a lot of instruction in Scripture. But just from the life of Peter and John, as Jesus is in one of the last interactions with them, wanting to help them understand what they need so they can walk in faithfulness. And he tells them his will is that they would be willing to follow even if it involves suffering and ultimately martyrdom. And his will is that they would be a people of the book because, listen, you and I cannot do a day or a week or a month or a year apart from the word of God because it is our sufficiency, it is our authority, it is all we need for life and godliness. And you and I need to be reminded continually because we're rebellious children. Like what the dad said, you know, his kids sometimes don't trust and obey and we had that experience, and I know often I don't trust and obey, and so I need the reminder of God's will is that I would walk in obedience, and we would walk in obedience. Stop trying to figure it all out. Life doesn't make sense. Stop insisting his will must fit your wants, but just submit, even if it involves suffering, and rejoice continually, abide in his word, and walk in obedience. Father, we thank you for your word, we thank you for this instruction that you gave to John to write, that your spirit moved him, that the very words he wrote were your very words. You knew what we would need, and all those who've come before us, you knew our tendency, you knew how our flesh just pulls us and twists us, and it's so easy for bitterness to reside in our hearts, for jealousy, for anger. When our faith is weak, we can struggle so much. And so I, I pray that your spirit would take these words. And Father, whatever is not true to your holy scripture, you would purge it out of the 
the ears and the minds of the listener, but what is true, would you apply it this week? Would you bring it to mind this week? Would you encourage us in these things as we think about how we should live each day this week? Father, would you strengthen us that we would be willing to walk in faithfulness even if the call comes tomorrow about suffering. That we would dig into your word and be a people of the book who are abiding with our Savior, the living word through his written word, and that we would walk in obedience, seeking to honor and glorify you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.